We're in the season of Easter, which is a season of salvation, a season of restoration. And we're going to eventually get to the Gospel of John, the 21st chapter, and talk about that period of time where uh, Jesus meets Peter on the beach. But I think it's important that before we get to that passage of Scripture, we talk about the events that lead up to that particular exchange. We live in a day and age where the the lines between virtues and vices have become sort of blurred in the popular culture. And we're not completely sure what pride is anymore. Now, I remember as a child, my parents taught me never toot your own horn. That was wisdom in 1962. Um, it seems now that the conventional wisdom is if you don't speak up for yourself, no one else is going to. And so that you have to self-promote, you have to tell everyone about how much you are. And, and this idea of pride as virtue is a complicated thing. Because I'm not saying there aren't times where some measure of pride is appropriate. Scripture's clear about that. Scripture tells us we shouldn't ever make comparisons with other people because we always you know, compare ourselves with people who are less than us so we look better, right? But scripture does say in at least one place, pull your own weight, work hard yourself so that you can take pride in your own accomplishments. But that's not a pride that says, hey, look at what I've done. That's an internal feeling of having carried my own weight, pulled my own responsibility. And that's appropriate. It's appropriate for us to feel good when we do what's right, okay? But pride, it sets us up for all kinds of difficulties if we don't understand it. Pride is dangerous and can express itself in all kinds of very subtle ways that undermine our lives. Some of the things that pride tells us, some of of the things that are expressed everywhere in our culture especially on television, uh, are things that have pride as their root, but don't necessarily appear to be prideful things. Let me just mention a few of them to help set the stage. It's a prideful thing to say, I can do anything I want. It's a prideful thing at some level to say, I decide how I will invest my life to say the things that I have are mine, to say my time is my own, to say I get to choose the kind of mate that I want. You say, Pastor, you're not like talking about arranged marriages, are you? No, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about taking a step back to a day when our parents chose our spouses for us, though 
if my sons would offer me that privilege, I'd be happy to take them up on it. But <laughs> short of that, I'm talking about understanding that I have a responsibility to the Father for the way I invest my life. Consequently, the person I choose as a mate needs to echo the values of my faith choices. Otherwise, I'm gonna spend my whole life living at odds with an individual that potentially doesn't share my life in Christ. It's prideful to believe that I know better than God and can choose from anyone whom I will marry, especially someone who's at odds with my core convictions. It's prideful to think that I can choose how I want to please God. Most times we think of pride in terms of I know better than anyone else. Isn't that sort of how pride subtly expresses itself in your mind? If they would just ask me my opinion, I could set them straight because I know. Maybe by education, by experience, by superior intelligence. I don't know how we all think we know, but we, we really know. And even if we don't say that out loud, we tell ourselves that. If they would just listen to me, but sometimes pride is even more subtle than that. More often, it's expressed by the belief that my choices are completely my own, that no one else has any claim on me, that I am independent from everyone else on the planet, and that even the creator has no claim on the choices that I make. While we humans can easily convince ourselves that all of those things are true, when we take the name Christian, there is a level of surrender of freedom that automatically happens. We ought to know that on the way in, right? There's, there's a surrender of a level of freedom the minute we take the name Christian. We exchange a certain level of freedom in order to serve as a disciple of Jesus Christ. This shouldn't be surprising. I mean, after all, you and I know that all discipline requires some kind of exchange like this. If you want to learn martial arts, you find a teacher and you submit to their instruction. If you want to learn how to play the viola, you find a teacher who is an expert in the strings and you submit to their way of holding the bow and their technique for pizzicato. I mean, you have to do that if you're going to learn to play. If you want to learn how to play golf, you find a golf pro and you take their advice about how you swing the club. You don't say, hey, I found this new way of swinging the club by holding it with my knees and I know that it works because I got a hole in one on a putt-putt course once so I know it works. I know it's not conventional, but this is my truth, and this works for me. You know, the golf pro doesn't want to hear that from you. Holding the club with your knees consistently will not yield results. 
the notion that my truth works for me is pride with a capital P. We know better than anyone else. We've found some kernel of truth and have amplified it because we think it works for us to the point where it allows us to indulge in any idea we want because we think we know better than everyone else. And it works for us, which usually means it's what makes me happy at the present moment. Peter gets caught up in this kind of pride at just the wrong moment in the story of Jesus. And this pride messes up everything for him. Now, I, th- I think it's helpful. Um, I think it's helpful to remember who Peter is, what he's seen, and what he's done as we step up to his story in this particular moment. I mean, Peter is someone who proclaims he will not abandon Jesus. Peter's the disciple who stepped out of the boat, took a few steps on the water till he lost his courage. Peter is the one who in Matthew 16 pronounces that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Peter is the one who has the guts to rebuke Jesus when Jesus says he's going to die. Peter says, oh no, Lord, that's not, and Jesus says, Peter, you're focused on the ways of humanity, not on the ways of God. Peter is one of the three members of Jesus' inner circle who actually witnesses the transfiguration up on the mountain, sees something that three have seen. In Matthew 26, again, when Jesus predicts the denial of one of the apostles, do you remember, seated around the table on that Thursday night and he's dipping the cup and he says, someone whom I dip the bread in the cup with will betray me. Jesus is hinting at Judas, Peter's quick to say, not me, won't ever be me, Lord. And then Jesus says to Peter, you know, you're going to betray me three times before the night is over. Peter's one of the three who is asleep in Gethsemane. Peter's the one who pulls out his sword and strikes off the ear of the high priest's servant when they come to arrest Jesus. Why does that happen? I'm thinking that Peter, who's been told he will deny Christ, is so upset with this revelation so anxious to prove his loyalty, so anxious to to make a name for himself, to secure his place beside the master, that, that he just forgets completely what the way of the cross and the way of Christ is. Because let's face it, if the humble Jesus, who has legions of angels at his command, can refuse to act violently and embrace the plan of salvation for us, he doesn't really need Peter's sword, right? But Peter, so anxious to do what he thinks is right, regardless of the method of the kingdom is, he just pulls out and assaults somebody, 
thinking that he's helping Jesus. When actually what he's doing is bringing a taint on the mission of Christ in the world. You know, there is only one miracle in all of scripture that is an apology. You know that? There's just one miracle in the scripture that's an apology that's done to clean up the mess that the disciple makes. And Jesus has got to heal some servant's ear because Peter has screwed up. So it takes divine intervention to clean up this disciple's mess. Isn't that a witness? How have you served God? Well, I made God have to apologize for my actions. That's the kind of testimony we all want to leave, right? And so you look at Peter and you say, who is this dude? Is he like a super apostle or is he a fallen apostle? Because Jesus is gonna heal the high priest's servants here, and then Peter's going to go and deny him three times because Peter knows he's messed up. He's lost, he's self-consumed, he's prideful, he's a mess. He's a mess. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like you just can't get it right? That you've messed up too many times? Not sure... I remember when I was a youth pastor in Virginia Beach, I was going through some files in my office and I found a file of letters that the teens had written that expressed their testimony and their relationship with God from a teen retreat and they were dated. And I took those letters about two years later and mailed them back to all the teens so they could read what they had written about their spiritual life two years previously. And then about two weeks later, I got a letter back in the mail. And it said, Pastor Dan, thank you so much for sending me this snapshot of myself. Because I realize I have not grown in two years. And that I was at a better spiritual place two years ago than I am today. And I have to repent and get back to where I was then. And I'm grateful to you for showing me the truth of my spiritual condition today. So here finally is John 21, 15. And as this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'd invite you to stand for the reading. John 15, John 21, 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. 
Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. Lord, apply your word to our hearts, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. For everyone who has ever fallen, for everyone who has been trapped by their own pride, for every person who's gotten off track, the story of Peter reminds us that Jesus lives to restore everyone who has lost, who is lost, who has fallen, who has strayed. Jesus, he invites us home. He wants us in the kingdom. You know, there was a big problem in the early church. Uh, as you know, the, the church faced severe persecution, sometimes to the point of death. And the church had to begin to deal with people who, in the face of the confrontation of death at the hand of Rome, caved in and didn't maintain their faith. There were people around who did maintain their faith and died at the point of a Roman sword. But then there are other people who were weak and gave in. And the church began to wrestle with this question. What do you do to people who don't maintain faith? What, what do you do if you didn't have the courage to keep faith in Christ? And there were sections of the church that said, well, if you don't confess Christ in the crisis moment, you're not Christian, and they were just booted out of the church. There are other folks who said, we don't want that to happen, but the grace of God is so extensive that he welcomes everyone who's fallen back because his grace is sufficient for us even in our sinfulness. And I think at some level, this story of Peter, which is written in the Gospel of John, after this becomes an issue, as at some measure aimed to try to settle that question. That it's not that we intend to sin or should choose to fall, but we should know that the kind of savior we have reaches out to all of us, to the best of us, to the, wor the worst of us, no matter how much we think about ourselves or how little we think about ourselves. We serve a Savior who intends to redeem everything that can be redeemed, who intends to restore everything that can be restored, and he wants to invite us back into the kingdom. He wants us to live in this kingdom. Not only does he want us to live in this kingdom, he wants us to express the life of the kingdom as we live. And that means it's not enough just to express relief that you've been invited back in. You must live the life of the kingdom once embraced, which means service. You heard the three replies. Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yup. Jesus says, work, right? Work, work, and work. Work, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Let's be about it. Let's, 
let's get to work together. Restoration, which we tend to think of only in terms of service or of only in terms of forgiveness, is service as an invitation because that's how we express our combined life in the kingdom of God. So while it's a wonderful thing to celebrate that God restores and invites us back, forgives us of our sin and gives us new birth in the kingdom, if we're only thinking of our restoration in terms of what it means for us, then we have this twisted again. You see the subtlety of pride in there? If my restoration, if my salvation is just about what I get out of it, then you're still putting yourself at the center of the universe. It's when you recognize that God saves us and embraces us and invites us into his family so that we can participate in his restoration project with him that you understand salvation, restoration, redemption, all of it puts us into this family who has been given a mission in this world, which is feed sheep, tend sheep, care for the people around you. So if you're still wondering about that question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is always yes. Am I my sister's keeper? Yes, you are. You don't want to be tough. That's part of the discipline of accepting the label Christian. Christian means joining Christ in this mission to care for others and to let the world know they are loved by God. I've often wondered how it is that the Father quickly re-embraces folks and puts them on mission but it takes us humans a little longer to get up to speed. Now, if folks do things to injure us, we don't forgive as quickly as God does. And I understand that, because in our human relationships, the rebuilding of trust takes time. You can't just flip a switch and trust someone who's injured you. And it's appropriate for it to take time. It's appropriate for folks to have to demonstrate by repeated actions that they are going to be trustworthy in the future. But we've got to let folks earn trust, don't we? We've got to give folks opportunity to serve so they can express the life of the kingdom once they've committed to Christ and stepped into the kingdom with him. In a moment, we're going to receive the communion elements again. And I'm going to invite you to come and take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and receive it. And when you receive it, you will be remembering the lengths to which Jesus Christ has gone to demonstrate his love for you. And when you receive it, you will remember that Jesus desires to restore everyone to redeem everything that can be redeemed, to cleanse and renew, reinvigorate with life all the people who will follow him. That's why the cup is freely offered because when we receive this cup, we should be hearing the words of Jesus in our ears saying, I love you. But as we 
as we prepare to receive this, um, before we do, I, I'd like to invite you to sing a song with me. It's just a couple verses. Um, it, it's a familiar song. And it, it just simply says, Lord, I want to come to you. It's a familiar tune, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And because you ask me to come to you, I'm going to come. And if this morning, like Peter, you find yourself sort of on the outside looking in, don't let pride keep you outside. Step into the kingdom. And if you have stepped into the kingdom and you come to celebrate what Christ has done for you, be willing to also celebrate the discipline he gives to you, which is the good news that your service in the kingdom matters and is important and is the way we express the kingdom in our daily lives. So if those who are going to assist me in serving would come, I'd invite you to stand. At the Passover meal that Jesus celebrated, there were likely four cups of wine. The first was the cup of sanctification, the second was the cup of deliverance. These first two cups pointed to the disciples that God's deliverance from, it, from Egypt was for Israel, but for all humanity. The third cup, which is the cup he shared with them near the end of the meal, was the cup of redemption. We share in this cup together today. It carried a new covenant, a saving covenant, and it reminds us of what Jesus did for us on Calvary's cross, the place he delivered us from sin and death. But the fourth cup, he did not drink. That cup was the cup of restoration. He is in the process of restoring everything that can be redeemed. He said that he would not drink that cup again until he drank it anew in the kingdom of heaven. But now the kingdom of heaven has been established and all of those who have been led out of darkness into light step forward to receive the bread and the juice to remind us that we now live in the kingdom of God, the family that God has established for us. In the taking of this sacrament, we hear Jesus say to us, I love you and I gave my life to let you know and to provide a way for you to live in my family forever. Come receive the gift of God for the people of God. Would you come and receive the bread and the juice? Father, we fall on your mercy today. We recognize that we're not much, and yet we're your creation. And we ask that you would restore us and redeem us and make us whole. Father, for those who might be here today who feel like they're on the outside looking in. 
We pray that your Holy Spirit would convince them of the truth of your invitation to enter in. And that they would be bold enough to receive you into their hearts. And ask you to live in them. Join us together as your people. And place us into service as you did for Peter. May our lives always reflect your glory this day and every day. Amen. Go in the peace of the Lord.